Well, I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word this morning. Join me once again in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 33, as we continue walking our way through the very first book of the Bible in a series entitled Origins, What Happened at the Beginning. I wanted to go ahead and give you an update on this series. We will finish this series at the end of the month of February, which means four weeks from now we will be done. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, we're on chapter 33, and I've looked ahead. There's 50 chapters. Are we going to be here all day on Sunday moving forward? Here's what I want you to know. We will work through chapter 36, and here's why. Because previously here at North River, I preached through a series from chapter 37 through chapter 50 on the life of Joseph. And so we're not going to recover that. I want to encourage you to go back. You can listen to that. It'll help put you to sleep at night. And it's available on our website or on our podcast feed. But we're going to spend the next four weeks working through chapter 36. And then we'll head into the book of 2 Peter. One of the things that we do if you're new to North River Church is we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, trusting God to speak to us through his word. His promise to us is that his word will not return void. It will accomplish everything that he intends for it to accomplish in our lives. Genesis chapter 33, the message this morning is entitled Reconciliation. For just a little bit of fun this morning as we prepare to dive into the text, how many of you, by show of hands, still write checks? How many of you still write checks? How many of you say, Pastor, what is a check? (laughs) Pay all our bills online, that kind of thing. Here's what I used to remember growing up. I remember reconciliation night at home where the bank statement would come in And my dad would sit down with the check registry and try to reconcile, try to make it all line up, the checks that were written, the expenses that were made, and what the bank said was there, the deposits, all of that. It was reconciliation night, which church, I'm just telling you, I remember vividly, Wendy, what did you spend $137 at Walmart for? And my mom's saying, I have no clue. But I remember that. The goal was to make it all line up, to bring it into alignment, the expenditures, the credits, all of that. And what's interesting is the word reconciliation is a word that Scripture uses to discuss, first and foremost, our relationship with God. The scriptures tell us that through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. But reconciliation also comes into play for us as followers of Jesus, hear me, in our relationship with other people. And so what we're going to see in the text this morning, as we left off last week, Jacob is going to meet his brother Esau. His brother that he had defrauded, his brother that he had cheated, his brother that he had taken what was rightfully his for himself, now it's time for a reckoning. Jacob must meet Esau. 
This is the point in the text where the music begins to build a bit. And so as we read through the text this morning, I want you to just put that in your mind. The music in the movie of Scripture is beginning to build. We are about to see what is going to happen between Jacob and Esau. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 33, this is God's word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would speak to us. God, open our eyes so that we would be able to see. Open our ears so that we would be able to hear. 
and open our hearts and our minds that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. If you're taking notes this morning, which I certainly encourage you to do, you can do that on a piece of paper. You can do that in the app, as we shared with you a few weeks back. But here's the main idea that will frame our time together in the text. It's this truth. Reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. Reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. Now, we're going to see reconciliation take place between Jacob and Esau, but before we venture into that, I want to lay some groundwork for us this morning so that we can better understand, as Scripture speaks about the issue of reconciliation, what first must we understand to be able to grasp what's going on in the text this morning, and then from the text to be able to look at our own lives and ask the question, how can I be reconciled with others? If you're taking notes, you write down these two statements under the main idea, reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. The first one is this, we as believers have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled as believers to God through Jesus Christ. Write down this scripture, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, 19 through 20. This is what Paul writes. For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, as we've been walking our way through the book of Genesis, we've been reminded that God is beginning part of his covenant with Abraham. We saw that early in the chapters in Genesis, and his promise to Abraham is that through Abraham and his lineage, he would bless the entire world that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed as a result of that. Now, what we've said early on from the beginning is that this would find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ stepping foot out of heaven, coming to this earth and taking on flesh, dwelling among us and going to the cross, taking our sin upon himself, laying his life down, And then being raised from the dead on the third day, securing salvation for us. You say, how did that take place? It took place through reconciliation. You see, the reality is on our ledger, all we brought to the table was our sin. And the scripture is clear about our sin. Sin brings death. It brings separation from God. We can't fix our own sin problem. But the good news is Jesus brought on his account the righteousness of God. And on the cross, Jesus switched places with us. He took our sin upon his ledger and laid his life down, his blood shed to forgive our sins, to pay the penalty that we owed as a result of our sin. And the greatest exchange he put on our ledger, his righteousness, which covers the life of every believer. 
I want you to hear me this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, the greatest exchange that ever took place in your life is what Jesus Christ did for you. Taking your sin and giving to you his righteousness. You may have come in this morning and for you, you've never taken the step of trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That, what I just described, is the greatest news that you could ever hear. And you have an opportunity this morning by faith to trust in what Jesus Christ did on your behalf, to receive that righteousness, to receive forgiveness of your sins on the basis of his life, death, and resurrection to be saved this morning. I want you to notice, secondly, under the main idea, reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. This second reality, we who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, notice, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We who have been reconciled to God through what Jesus Christ did on our behalf have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Write down this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through verse 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a verse that we probably are very familiar with, but notice, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, notice, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have been reconciled with God, but you have been given a ministry, that is the ministry of reconciliation, to proclaim to the world what Jesus Christ has done for you, and to let them know that Jesus Christ can do that in their lives as well. Now with that as the foundation, With that as the reminder that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you have experienced vertical reconciliation. Now, here's the question for us, believer. What about horizontal reconciliation? What about being reconciled to other people? In a room this size, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind right now that there are many of us in this room who are at odds, if you want to call it in a nice way, with someone else. I don't know what the situation is. I don't know what the fight was about. I don't know what they did to you or what you did to them, but there is a break in fellowship with that person. I want you to hear me this morning. God can bring 
reconciliation in that relationship. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, your desire should be to experience reconciliation in that relationship. I want you to notice as we look at Genesis chapter 33 this morning, Jacob and Esau. You're taking notes. I want to highlight for us as we walk through the text three requirements for reconciliation. Horizontal reconciliation. If we're going to experience that reconciliation with others, what will it take? Notice in verses one through three, reconciliation requires humility. Verse 1, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Remember, we were introduced to this last week as we were walking through Genesis chapter 32, and I told you that those men that were coming, the 400 were not 400 bankers. They were 400 warriors who were leading the charge, heading to meet Jacob. You say, well, what was the big deal? Don't lose sight of what happened between Jacob and Esau leading up to this. Remember, it was Jacob who had cheated Esau out of his birthright. That was his inheritance that he was supposed to receive from his father. For a little bit of stew, he was able to trick his brother into selling to him his birthright. And then later, he was able to trick his father, instead of blessing Esau, who was the firstborn, he blessed Jacob instead. Remember that when they last left, Esau had made a vow. He had said, as soon as it is opportune time, I am going to murder my brother. Remember, Jacob took off. He had spent 14 years away from this situation, but now the Lord has told him it's time to go back home. And in going back home, he's going to have to face up to what he had done to his brother Esau. Remember last week that Jacob had done a number of different things to try to prep for what was coming. He had tried to scheme and plot and plan. He had tried to come up with any number of different ways to deal with the situation and his own strength and his own power. And the Lord, and verse 22 moving forward in chapter 32, reminds Jacob of a very real truth. And that is that the Lord ultimately is in control. That Jacob need not fear because the Lord is with him. And so Jacob is about to meet his brother. It says he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. But I want you to notice verse 3. He himself, listen, went on before them. Remember, Jacob's a bit of a cheat, at least he was. Remember that Jacob was one who would seek to scheme his way through things, but notice what he does. Jacob moves up to the front of the line. If he's going to have to meet Esau, 
He's going to meet him first. He's not going to sacrifice his children. He's going to meet Esau head on. But notice the second part of verse 3. Bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. If anything could be said about verse 3, it is the fact that Jacob approached his brother with a sense of humility. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer, one of the questions that they ask when they walk up to, I don't know this, I've been told this, right? (laughs) The question that they'll ask is, first and foremost, do you know why I pulled you over? My brother is a police officer. He said, it is amazing what people will come up with. (laughs) Dumbfounded, I have no idea. Like, well, you were doing 27 over, so like maybe that's it. (laughs) But what they want in that moment, a lot of friends, a lot of church members that work for the police department or for the sheriff's department, just be humble and admit what you did. Just approach it with a measure of humility. Now, you may still get a ticket, but here's the deal. You earned that ticket, but an amazing thing may happen as well. Because you responded with humility, you may very well just get a warning. See, here's the thing. When we think about relationships with other people, when we think about where maybe we have wronged someone else or maybe someone has wronged us, the question is, how are we going to approach that situation with them? Are we going to come in, chest bowed out, saying, I'm ready for a fight, let's go? Or as Jacob demonstrated here, will we approach that situation with a measure of humility? Will we come willing to reconcile versus willing to fight? If you're married, let me ask you that question. You and your spouse get into a disagreement. Things get heated for just a bit. Some of y'all are like, that doesn't happen in my house. You are lying, right? (laughs) Imagine the change in that situation if both approach the other with a sense of humility. I'm not saying you need to bow down seven times like Jacob did. But it demonstrated to Esau that Jacob was coming into this situation with a sense of humility. Reconciliation requires humility. You may be here this morning, and for you as a follower of Jesus, you have a relationship right now that is in turmoil, a relationship where you've been wronged or you've wronged someone else, and I want you to hear me this morning. You need to approach that situation with a sense of humility. 
You need to approach that other person with a measure of humility, being willing to enter into the conversation, not primarily focused on what you want, but primarily focused on how can we work through this situation at hand. Jacob approaches in verse three with humility, but as we continue to walk through verses four through 11, reconciliation requires responsibility. Notice verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and throat punched him. Y'all paying attention? Because that's not what it says. Ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, notice that Jacob's tenor in this conversation that follows is deference to what God has done. Notice, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down, and Leah and her children drew near and bowed down, and Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. And Esau says, what do you mean by all of this company that I met? Remember that when Jacob was trying to work this thing out by his own strength and his own power, he had sought to bribe his brother. He had sent all kinds of gifts ahead. And Esau says, what was that all about? I want you to notice Jacob's answer to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I want you to notice Jacob's response. Jacob said, no. Please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. I want you to think about the different response that could have taken place just then. Esau says, I don't need those gifts. I don't need those things from you, Jacob. To which the old Jacob would have said, oh, good. (laughs) I'll take them back. I'll have all of this wealth brought back to me. But I want you to notice that that's not what Jacob says. And I don't think it's reading too far between the lines at this point to to ask the question, why is Jacob willing to allow Esau to keep those items? Because at this point, they've already been reconciled. Esau has already met him, has already kissed him, has already hugged him, has already said to him, it is good to see you. Jacob no longer has to try to buy the goodwill of his brother in this moment. The Lord has already been at work in this situation. So why then does Jacob continue to allow him to accept those gifts? One word, responsibility. 
See, because I think what's going on in here is Jacob recognizes very easily the fact that he had stolen from his brother. Do you remember that? He had taken his birthright, which at this point in time, the first son would have received not just one portion of the inheritance, but a double portion of the inheritance from the father. But Jacob had slipped in and stolen that from Esau. And here's what I think is going on. Jacob's saying in this moment, this is what I took from you with interest. Here's it back to you. And notice what he says. God has been gracious to me. God has given me enough. One of the things, if reconciliation is going to take place in our relationships, we are going to have to take responsibility for ourselves. Because here's the thing, in every single relationship, in every single conflict, in every single problem that we experience relationally with our spouse or with our kids or with other people, at every turn, we bear some responsibility for what's going on in that situation. And we may want to look at that and say, well, I'm totally innocent in this. That's usually how conflict between you and your spouse escalates. Have you ever noticed that? I didn't do anything wrong. It's all you. It's all your fault. Or with kids and teenagers, it's all your fault. I didn't do anything. And yet in this situation, Jacob knows very well what he had done wrong, how he had treated his brother. And in this, he takes responsibility for that. Take responsibility for what you are responsible for. You don't have to take responsibility for what you're not responsible for. But in conflict, in disagreement, where you are responsible as a follower of Jesus, take responsibility for that. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Some of you bristled just then. Some of you have not said, I'm sorry, in decades. And it shows in your relationships. Take responsibility for what you are responsible for. Jacob in this moment with Esau takes responsibility. But notice in verse 12, this is absolutely fascinating from verse 12 through verse 20. Because Esau on the back end of this is offering to help his brother. Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. Essentially, I will offer myself and these 400 trained warriors as an escort to get you back to where you're supposed to go. Jacob in this moment says, no, I'm okay. And then Esau says in verse 15, well, hang on just a second. What if I leave some of these 400 trained warriors with you And they'll provide protection for you as you move forward. To which Jacob again 
Notice what he says in verse 15. What need is there? Well, I can think of a lot of needs in that moment. I mean, just imagine you are walking down the downtown area of any city with hundreds of thousands of dollars in your pockets. You are a ripe person to be robbed and beaten in that moment, aren't you? Be good to have an entourage with you, a little bit of protection. And that's what Esau's thinking for Jacob in this moment. But what I want you to recognize and understand is that Jacob is not concerned, not because he's dumb, but because he knows the Lord is with him. Reconciliation, thirdly, requires trust. Reconciliation requires trust. Notice that Jacob is not trusting in what Esau can provide for him. Jacob is trusting ultimately in what the Lord can do on his behalf. So let me say this. As you engage in conflict, as you approach a situation with humility, as you take responsibility where you bear responsibility, ultimately you can't do anything within that relationship other than that. And at some point, you simply have to trust in the work of the Lord in that other person's heart. This is where it is so hard. This is where it is so difficult for us as followers of Jesus to simply turn it over to the Lord. But notice that's exactly what Jacob does in this moment. After the relationship has been reconciled, instead of taking the protection of his brother, he says, what need is there? And notice that Jacob journeys to Succoth. He builds a house and booths for his livestock. He names that place Succoth. And then moving forward, he bought a hundred pieces worth of land. And there... He put up an altar, and he called it God, the God of Israel. I don't know if you caught that or not, but at each point through the text, Jacob is still called Jacob. But if you remember, his name had been changed in the previous chapter to what? Israel. And this was a key moment. Is Jacob going to act like Jacob, a cheat, a swindler, or is he going to trust in what God is doing and what God can do? And at the end of the text, we see he builds this altar. And he says, it's God, the God of Israel. As we look at that, I simply want to remind us this morning, as we think about reconciliation and relationships, as we think about reconciliation, don't lose sight of the fact that reconciliation, first and foremost, must happen within us and our relationship with the Lord. And it is only through that 
that we can understand what true reconciliation looks like and be empowered to do the things that we talked about here, to approach it with humility, to approach it with responsibility, and ultimately to trust in what God is doing. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As our worship team makes their way back up, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word this morning, maybe for you. That response needs to be at the very beginning. You have never taken the step of trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, of being reconciled to God through the sacrificial death, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is an opportunity for you this morning to respond, to experience that reconciliation, being right with God. Maybe you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus who's experienced that, but for you this morning, there is a relationship, there is a marriage, there is conflict that is at play right now within your life. I want you to grab hold of the hope this morning that God can work through that. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to spend some time in prayer, maybe on your knees before the Lord this morning, interceding on behalf of that situation, asking God to give you humility, asking God to help you see and take responsibility where you bear responsibility, and ultimately to trust that he is at work in that situation for our good and for his glory. God, we ask that you work in our hearts and our lives right now. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Our pastors are down front, our altar's open. You respond as the Lord leads.